Hey guys, welcome to True Crimes and Weird Times. Today's episode is going to be a little different. It's just me, Kim, here. Ashley is feeling a little under the weather. Don't worry, she doesn't have COVID. But I'm just going to be doing our true crime segment, so this will be kind of a short episode. The story I'm going to be telling you today is about Brandon Swanson. He was a 19-year-old boy who called his parents in the middle of the night to pick him up after running into a ditch. But when they get to where he says he is, they find no trace of him, despite still having him on the phone. Then the line goes dead. Brandon Swanson was born January 30th, 1989 in Marshall, Minnesota. His parents' names were Brian and Annette, and he was raised in the same town he was born in. He was an avid reader and was reportedly very devoted to his family. After graduating Marshall High School in 2007, Brandon went on to study wind turbines at Minnesota West Community and Technical College, which was in the city of Canby and only about 30 miles away from his hometown. May 13, 2008 was the last day of class for Brandon. He had successfully completed his first year of college and decided to celebrate with a few friends. The celebrations were significant to Brandon as he was planning to transfer to a college in Iowa the following semester, so this was kind of his last goodbye to everybody. Sometime between 10.30 p.m. and 11 that night, Brandon leaves that first party to go to a friend's home in Canby to say goodbye to a classmate who was also throwing a party. So he leaves party one to head to party two. He did have a few drinks at the second party, but witnesses say Brandon didn't appear intoxicated at all, and he decided to head home shortly after midnight. At around 1.15 in the morning, Brandon runs his car off the gravel road he was on and into a ditch. He was uninjured, but he was unable to get his car out. He attempts to call a few friends for help, but when he's unable to reach anyone, he finally calls his parents for help about 2 a.m. His parents just say, hey, look, it's fine. Just tell us where you are. We'll come and get you, you as parents do. And Brandon tells his parents he had, for some unknown reason, decided to take some back roads. So he was unsure of his exact location, but he believed he was somewhere near the town of Lind. Now, Brandon had been in Canby, which was a straight shot down Highway 68 to his home in Marshall. It's only about a 30-minute drive, and it would have been one he's driven over and over again for college because he still lived in Marshall. Now, Lind is a tiny town about seven miles southwest of Marshall, so there's not really any reason for him to be over towards Lind when it was just a straight shot from Canby back to Marshall. So Annette and Brian head out to search for Brandon in their truck, staying on the phone with him while they searched. Both Brandon and his parents flash their lights often in an attempt to locate each other. But repeating this process over and over, both Annette and Brandon are frustrated and they can't see each other. And he keeps saying, don't you see me? Don't you see me? I'm right here. And they both end up getting super frustrated and Brandon finally hangs up on his mother. Annette just immediately calls him back apologizes for getting frustrated, and they decide to come up with a new plan. Look, this clearly isn't working. Let's do something else. So Brandon says, look, I can see the lights in the town nearby. I can see Lind. I'm just going to walk to this bar. I know where it is. You can meet me there in the parking lot and pick me up. His parents agree to that plan, but they go ahead and keep Brandon on the phone with them while he walks so they can kind of keep tabs on him and make sure he's safe and make sure he gets there all while still keeping their eyes out for the car that Brandon has ran into the ditch. 
While Brandon's walking, he's describing some of the things he's passing. He mentions a couple of fences, and he can hear rushing water. 47 minutes into the call, Brandon's parents hear him yell, Oh, shit! And then the line goes dead. They immediately start calling him back, and it's just ringing and ringing and ringing and going to voicemail, and they can't get in touch with him. At this point, Brandon's parents call some of his friends to come and help them search, and they search for about three hours, but they don't find anything. At 6.30 a.m., they give up searching on their own and decide to go to the police to report him missing. But instead of coming out to help search, the police tell his parents to just wait. It's not uncommon for young guys to go off the grid for a bit and stay out all night, especially at the end of the semester when there are parties and drinking and, you know, that sort of thing going on. I can only imagine how devastating this was to Brandon's parents. They knew he had crashed his car. They knew he was trying to get home and they knew something bad had happened to him. They heard him on the phone. So Brian and Annette push and they insist the police help them. They have to do something, anything to help them find their son. So finally, the police give in and they begin searching for Brandon, but not until 12 p.m. Now, one of the first things the police do is run Brandon's phone records and try to get a location. To everyone's surprise, the last ping on Brandon's cell phone put him not near Lind, where he thought he was, but 20 miles away near Taunton, Minnesota. Now, Taunton is about 13 miles down Highway 68 between Canby and Marshall. So rather than being almost home, like Brandon was insisting he was, he really hadn't even made it halfway yet. Brandon's Chevrolet Lumina was found near the border of Lincoln and Yellow Medicine Counties. The car had no visible damage and no evidence that Brandon had been hurt. The car had simply tipped over a steep embankment and the tires were too high off the ground to get any traction, so he was unable to get the car back out of the ditch. At this point, police call in a few other jurisdictions to help with the search, and they go all out. They could take to horseback. They do aerial searches, they have all-terrain vehicles out, and they focus on this three-mile radius around the car, since that's about the furthest distance an adult could walk in the 47 minutes he was on the phone with his parents. They also bring in search dogs, who do pick up Brandon's scent, and they follow it for about three miles to Yellow Medicine River. Now, Brandon had mentioned hearing rushing water, so it makes sense that his trail would lead them to the river. Now, the dogs actually get all the way to the edge of the water, with one actually hopping in and out. The dogs continue on a little ways past the river, though, to another gravel road, and then they lose the trail. So police start focusing all their efforts on the river. They use sonar, they use boats, they clear out debris for yards on either side of the river, trying to find anything that had washed up or footprints or anything, but ultimately they don't find anything. No footprints. They don't find his cell phone. They don't find the car keys. It's almost like he wasn't even there. Despite not finding anything in that initial search, police keep coming back and searching over and over again over the next two years. 
They would wait for the season to change and snow would melt so they'd have better visibility or the dogs would have better trails to pick up. Just different things that might give them a better advantage on trying to find anything of Brandon's. They also bring in cadaver dogs several times and they often alerted at a place called Mud Creek, which is nearby, but they never actually found any body or any remains or anything there. Although police do speculate, had he fallen into the river, it's very possible his body could have washed up at Mud Creek. So that's a possibility. But like I said, they don't find any body. They don't find any remains. They don't find anything. But along with not finding Brandon or his stuff, they also don't find any evidence of foul play or any kind of crime being committed. There's just nothing. There's no way to know what happened to him. Now, there are a few key points I wanted to hit on and some questions I kind of wanted to bring up. Could the drinking that night have been a factor? By all accounts, Brandon was not intoxicated. It's pretty universally accepted that even though he had drank some, he was totally sober. His parents talked to him on the phone. His friends saw him leaving. Everyone is pretty much in agreement that he was safe to drive. However, I did come across a theory that he was taking back roads to maybe avoid police. Even though he was sober enough to be drinking, he was only 19, so he was still underage. So any amount of alcohol in his system at all would have been a big deal. So maybe he was trying to take back roads to avoid being on the main highway so that he wouldn't get pulled over and get into trouble. But why was he so far from where he thought he was? I mean, if he left a little bit after midnight, he didn't run off the road until about an hour later. Where was he that whole time? Why was he only about 15 minutes away from Canby? I mean, he could have been on back roads, but since I can't find the exact roads that he took, I can't say for sure if that's a realistic timeline. To go 13 to 15 miles on back roads, would that take you an hour? I just... I can't say for sure. It depends on how windy they are, how your car can handle gravel roads, how slow you have to go. And if he was lost and trying to find his way, I mean, maybe it did take him an hour to drive those back roads. But he clearly thought that he was somewhere else. So he knew he had been driving for about an hour. To him, it would have made sense that the lights in the distance would be Lind, not... Porter, which was another city closer to where his car was found. There was also a theory that he saw some red lights on top of some old water towers and stuff that he could have thought was city lights. I don't know if I would mistake red water tower lights for city lights, but I mean, maybe it's possible if he didn't know where he was, if he was frustrated, if he was tired. I mean, who knows? The next question is, could Brandon have fallen into the river and drowned? The short answer is yes, that is a possibility. But it's not the only possibility. I mean, the river that night was as high as 10 feet in some places. And we all know that finding a body in running water is very difficult. But 
Also, remember the dogs did pick up his scent again outside the river. So I think it's more likely that he fell in and lost his cell phone and then got back out and tried to keep going. But that's not necessarily a good thing. You see, it was 39 degrees the night Brandon went missing. So had he fallen into a cold river, getting back out into 39 degree weather would put him at a very high risk of hypothermia, which is also a possibility of what happened. If he fell into the river, he got out, it's freezing. It's not going to take very long to succumb to hypothermia. And if he lost his phone in the river, that explains why his parents kept calling and calling, couldn't get a hold of him. Now, at first when they're calling him, it is ringing over and over and over. It's not until the next day that the phone dies and starts going to voicemail. To me, now I've never dropped a phone in water before. I don't know if it can keep ringing, if it's died in water, or if it would go straight to voicemail. I feel like it would act as if the phone's turned off if it's in water, But maybe I'm wrong. Like I said, I've never dropped a phone in water. I don't know all the technicalities there. But personally, I feel like it wouldn't take hours for a phone to stop ringing if it's fallen into a river. Now, back to the hypothermia theory. People will often seek shelter in hollow trees or caves and then succumb to the elements. And that makes them a lot more difficult to find. So it's very possible that if Brandon was that cold and wet and had no phone, he didn't know where he was, maybe he sought out some kind of shelter and hid himself there to try and stay warm and make it through the night, and no one's just been able to find him. However, remember I said they've brought in cadaver dogs several times, and they haven't found a body anywhere. Plus, why would his trail just suddenly end at this gravel road if he had walked off and hid somewhere? You would think it would be somewhere relatively close that the dogs could pick up on that scent again. But again, they didn't, and no one found anything. We also can't completely ignore the possibility of foul play. His trail ended at a road. Is it possible that someone was driving by and they picked him up or offered him a ride or just forcefully took him. I mean, maybe it is a little gravel back road in the middle of nowhere. I don't know how many people would be looking for a victim out in the woods all alone at 2 a.m., but I'm not going to say it's impossible because stranger things have definitely happened. Another theory I was mulling over was the possibility of a hit and run. Had someone been speeding down this road at 2 a.m. on a gravel road, they're used to not seeing anybody out there. They know this road. And all of a sudden, there's Brandon. If they hit him and hurt him or hit him and killed him and panicked, maybe they covered it up. Maybe they took him with them. Maybe they hid the body. That's just a theory I was kind of mulling over just because of the whole trail leading to a gravel road and stopping part. There's also the possibility that he stumbled upon someone doing some sort of illegal activity and was killed for that, or stumbled onto somebody's property who didn't want people trespassing and got a little trigger happy. I mean, these are all very possible scenarios. Although, 
ultimately, I think the most likely theory is that he did fall into the river and probably got back out and succumbed to the elements later. But there's just so many unanswered questions in this case. Why couldn't they find his body? Why couldn't they figure out where he went? Why does the trail abruptly stop at a gravel driveway? Where was he for that hour after he left the party? How did he think he was 20 miles further south than he really was? Where had he been that whole time? Unfortunately, these are questions we're probably never going to find the answers to. But there is one good thing that has come out of this case. After the delay in search efforts and being told that Brandon had a right to be missing... Annette and Brian managed to get a law passed exactly one year after Brandon disappeared called Brandon's Law. The law requires law enforcement to take a missing persons report without delay after notification of someone missing under dangerous circumstances, no matter the missing person's age. They are to immediately conduct a preliminary investigation to determine if the person is missing, whether the person is endangered, and promptly notify all other law enforcement agencies of the situation. Law enforcement is also required to seek additional information, including DNA samples, dental records, x-rays, photographs, and fingerprints, if the missing person is not found within 30 days. Since Brandon's remains have never been found, his disappearance is still an open case. According to an article by Louth Missing Persons, Brian and Annette turned on their porch light on May 14, 2008, the night Brandon vanished. The light remains on every night. There's no reason to turn it off now, Brian said. I'm pretty sure we're not going to find him alive, but I still want to believe that we will find him. That's probably a stretch, but I still want to believe that. Thanks for listening. Like us on Facebook at True Crimes and Weird Times Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at True Crimes Weird Times. Email us your stories at truecrimesweirdtimes at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Bye.